Okay, so let me tell you one more, but this has to do with what I want to talk about today, uh, size differences. So you heard the story about the bodybuilder, right, that, that uh, had uh, lost his job, and then he saw a posting of a job at the zoo. I'm sure it was the blank part zoo, no doubt. And so he went and introduced himself, and the zookeeper said, I got the perfect job for you. Actually, our, our lion... Um, uh, let's see here. How does this roll here? Our gorilla is sick. I want you to put on this outfit and this gorilla suit. He said, it's really easy, actually. You're perfect build. Just do this for two or three hours, and, and the crowd will come, and they won't know any different. Just kind of swing and you know, act like a gorilla and eat a banana. And, we, and he thought, well, this is easy, schmeasy. And so he gets all the stuff on and gets out there and goes in the cage and does his thing. He's actually kind of enjoying it. So kind of the end of the shift, he's really getting into it. And he swings from this tree, and he loses his grip, and he lands in the lion's cage. And just as he is, uh, this crowd's like, whoa. And just as he is landed... He sees the lion coming towards him and yells, help. And right at that time, as the lion was right over him, he hears the lion say, shh, be quiet, or we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so, so the point is, sometimes you see something, you think, oh, that's it. And it might not be it. And uh, technologically, actually, it's almost like, can you really even believe anything that you see? Evidently, there's new artificial intelligence out in technology that can imitate a person's voice. Uh, who's, the, who's the big chef that killed himself a couple of years ago? Bourdain, and Anthony Bourdain, who tragically did, but they have a new movie out about him. But evidently, he had written some statement, but he never made this statement, but he wrote it. So they took the, the, the wording and pieced all of his voice together for him to say what he wrote. So it kind of bumps the edge of, you know, just because you heard that or you saw it, did that actually really happen? So if you can understand that, you can understand what I want to talk about today in the area of theology in the church and spiritual matters, because what you think might be, this is awesome and amazing, and this person is the person I'm going to follow, you better be very careful about that. So here we are a couple thousand years later, so back up towards the very beginning, this is what was going on in the early church. And so this is where you find, back to the idea of God's Twitter account, and we have mentioned, uh, let's see here, Obadiah, the old for, uh, one chapter, and then uh, about God's sovereignty, and then yesterday about man's responsibility in Philemon. And it's not the only ones, but I'm just giving you what emphasis we've been making. And so today, I want to, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 John. If one of the other five fingers, turn to John 15, because I'm going to kind of flip back and forth. And how important is the church and the personal relationships in 2 John? So let's talk a little bit about, and I'm going to, I'm going to read the letter. It's only 13 chapters. It's less than 300 Greek words, and then tomorrow, 3 John, similarly, under 300 words. So they're just, again, little is written, but much is said. And I think it's worth the emphasis here on these five, what we would call, 
tweets or you could call old school postcards of the Bible. And, and John himself, yesterday, who, who wrote most of the content of the New Testament? Luke. Who wrote most of the, what we would know as books or letters of the New Testament? Paul. And um, then, then you find John, who had wrote quite a bit. What are the books that John wrote? John. You got the Synoptic Gospels, and then years later, he wrote the book of John to, to all of us, including the Gentile world, and talked about the life of Jesus that hadn't been covered. Then you move forward at least 40 years. Then he writes what we would know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And those particular three little letters are like towards the end of his life. Some would say he's 90, late 80s, early 90s. So he has seen a whole generation come through. Okay, so he was the one that was one of the sons of thunder. Do you remember that? He was one of the three closest to Jesus. So he was like firsthand, saw all of this. He was one of the uh, sons of, of, uh, of a fisherman. And, and uh, man, they were they called down fire from heaven. But it's interesting that how he starts noting himself as not naming himself in the book of John, but as an apostle of love, the one that leaned on Jesus' breast. He would never mention himself. So it's almost like he's distancing himself from his own personality. So now you're talking um, late 80s, almost like early 90s, that he's writing this one letter, 1 John, five chapters, and he's talking to regional churches. So you kind of like, here's a book that he wrote 40 years earlier about to everyone. Then he writes the regional church. Then 2 John, he writes to a family in a church. 3 John, tomorrow, he writes to one guy in a church. But the continuity is it's all about churches. And so he identifies himself now as the aides, the elderly. And he's writing to one lady. And he's emphasizing, and the words I want you to hear before we read the letter is um, love and truth. And then he eventually gets to uh, a word walking, knowing and walking and abiding. And he's emphasizing that, are you sure that's a gorilla? Are you sure that's a lion? Are you sure that that's that guy's voice? And, and, and so you have to have a filtering base for this. You have to be very discerning. And this is kind of the emphasis that he's talking to this lady, and he's emphasizing that. There's a term called a cupper. I think that Pastor Mike is a cupper. He doesn't know that he's a cupper. Have you heard that term, Mike? So that is identifying with someone that loves coffee and has a discerning taste for good coffee. Thank you. Got an amen. Have me give an amen. You like that. So, um, so. And, and Mike loves good coffee. I do too. It, the, life's too short to be drinking cheap coffee and 
lousy ice cream. It's just life is way too short to be doing that. And so they, there are people that actually get certified to do that in certain states, and they're so good that they can tell you what type of coffee, not just the type of coffee, like let's say it's from Guatemala, but what altitude it's from. That's how good they are. I'm sure Mike is that level. So kind of like that idea is really what John is saying is you better be very discerning about your own spiritual intake. And, and so that's, that's the whole point. So note that in the book here, in your little page 12 or 14, John commends love as a necessary ingredient of the Christian life. It must not be sentimentally embraced with those who willfully seek to destroy the truth. To do so is diminish the proper love which Christians must have for one another. So this was going on here again, almost into a second generation after Christ. And he makes this emphasis, and it's our emphasis today. So let's take a look. Let's read through this. I'll make some comments after we read it. Make a few explanations. And then give an illustration at the very end. Note, uh, this is the elder under the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy, peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we've received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, same term that he used in verse 1, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as we have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. He kind of toggles, and now he kind of drills down a little bit. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So you look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, and notice how often he mentions that, doesn't have God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come in any of you, and they don't bring this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that bids him Godspeed, he's partaking in his own evil deeds. So having many things to write unto you, I would not with paper and ink, but I would trust I'd come to you and speak face to face, actually mouth to mouth, that your joy may be full. That your children of the elect sister also greet you. 
Amen. So th- this is the letter. It's concise. It's short. It's almost like a tweet by John for all of other writings because we know later, a few years later, some would disagree in this, but I personally think that after he got done with this, he now, who is pastoring Ephesus, um, then went on and got put on Patmos and, and where God now unveils to John the heavenlies. Like he gets ushered into heaven and writes what we know as the uh, uh, revelation of Christ. This is John. This is the elect. This is the guy that, whether this is by nature the position which he had or by nature of respect, by virtue of a position within the Jewish community, or it is just, he's an older person. And this, I think, is what the, the meaning is. And he's writing to the chosen lady. Some in earlier manuscripts from the early church would suggest that this was actually a metaphor for the church. And it just, there's not much there to support that for a lot of good reasons that we don't have time to get into. But the reality is that he's talking to a person, a lady that he knew. He's an older guy. Here's this lady with her family, her children, and she's known for hospitality. She is known for evidently enough finances that she takes care of people. And, and, and of course, most of you know that back in that day, there was not the Ramadas, the Hiltons, the Wyndhams, um, and uh, didn't have the RVs. And so, so people would regularly just stay in inns, and they were incredibly dangerous, incredibly costly. And so the Christian community, in showing hospitality, had created a network. So you could almost go anywhere over the Roman Empire, and eventually word got around that there were certain people who know. We don't know where she lived, um, and there are some implications of some of this, but the reality is that people knew if you're going to this area, you want to you go to this lady's house, and she'll take care of you. And so this was, the, this was how it was in that day. And often would stay a long time. It wasn't just an overnight, but they would take care of you and provide your needs. And, and so there was a great welcoming. She was known for this. So evidently, John had gotten wind that there was a deterioration of the passion and solidity of doctrine. This is why he wrote to her, because he loved her so much. And this is why he, he says, you know, I, I love you in the truth. And it's not just me only, but all that have, have known the truth. And here's now this, 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 this terminology. So let me put this into three qualities of a faithful family in the time we have. Number one, I would put this in these first few verses. I would summarize it, but a faithful family will be linked to a church. Because in the context of all of John's writings, they're all related to the church. So if you move forward a few more years when John pens Revelation, how many churches did he write to at the beginning of Revelation? Seven. I do think it seems to indicate that it almost uh, give us a progression of where, where the church as a whole was going. But certainly these were real churches with real people, and he already saw deterioration of them, including the church of Ephesus that he had once pastored and said, you've lost your first love. You've, you've left your first love. So there was already a deterioration of all of this going on. So he continually elevated 
the church and the need for it. And he's basically saying this lady who was a part of a church, listen, I'm commending you, but I'm also emphasizing of your willingness to love, but it's attached to the, to the truth and that the, 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 the difference is, is, is really, it's symbiotic. In other words, it's, we have a tendency to kind of divide this out, and evidently this was going on, so that, well, if you're really loving, then you can't be truthful. If you're truthful, you can't be loving. And he keeps continually tying these things together, say, there's not any difference, because love without truth can get very syrupy and mushy. And some of the churches that got so truthful that they were ceramic and brittle, and so he's saying both of these connect together. So th- for the truth's sake, which dwells in us, is going to be also with you and with us all together. He does identify, verse 3, this doctrinal statement of grace to you and mercy and peace and God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love, this constant marrying together of all of this. And actually, the four or five times that truth is mentioned, the four or five times that love is mentioned, they continually are mixed in there. So I say this because when you get to verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I found out of your children they were also walking in truth. He introduces himself that this truth and love are going to express itself in the idea of walking. So number two, if you're taking notes, you can fill in a faithful family will express itself in truth and love. In other words, truth must exist before love can unite. There's this sense in which they both are together and this invitation of knowing the truth that you're walking in the truth as we have received a commandment. Now, where in the world is he quoting this commandment of walking in the truth? Or verse 5, I'm begging you, lady. This is this term of endearment, like they knew each other. There's a great respect for this. But there has to be, he was so thankful that her own children, literally her children are walking in the truth. Like he's commending her for all this. Which, pause for a minute, by the way, those of you that have children, um, I find that, and, 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 and I would put myself and my wife in the same category, when you have children, you, you get very ideali- idealistic, like our kids are just going to do this, and they're going to you know, walk perfect, perfectly, and they're going to all love Jesus. And somewhere along the line, you find out that, that others' kids didn't, but yours will, and, and eventually you come to reality that they're, they're not always going to land rightly. Somewhere along the line, your children are going to land with their wheels up. And there, it's going to be a problem. Uh, I was in a conversation a couple weeks ago with my brother-in-law who, who has, and he didn't mind me saying this because he, he's an evangelist. He tells a story uh, around to, to illustrate this point. We were talking about this because he has uh, six kids Five of them all in ministry. Four boys are pastoring. And then he has a daughter who, who's involved with ministry. And he has another boy who's the most talented kid out of all of them. So our kids grew up with their kids, okay? So now all of our kids are in their late 20s and early 30s as his boy is. And uh, so I was, I was talking to him because I knew that in a week we were going to be in New York City, New York, which, which is where we were. And I reached out to Josh and got us... Uh, 
contact and said, hey, if you got time, I'm happy to get with you. Well, he he like, yeah, I'd love to. So we had a couple-hour conversation over a cup of coffee uh, because he's in, in um, Broadway, and that's what he always wanted to do. And he graduated from a Christian college, incredibly smart, talented. And eight years ago, he called his dad and said, I, um, I've come to realize in the study of scriptures and my love for Christ that the four Old Testament passages and four New Testament passages all talking about homosexuality have all been misunderstood and so that actually I'm okay to be able to embrace a homosexual lifestyle. So I'm involved with a partner and we've committed to celibacy before we eventually get married. And he was saying this because he also, he and his partner had for weeks and weeks um, did shooting for Survivor. I, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the reality show, but, and he was like the third he and his partner were the, the third one before they were done. And so she was like, yikes. So here we are a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking about this. I said, how do you see that Josh, who's chosen this lifestyle, so different than everybody else? He said, I've come to the conclusion that there are four factors that shape a child's life. Since that time, last few weeks, I've been thinking about this and I added a fifth one into here. So his point was, because I, he said, it's easy to feel so guilty because of my kids and where they are in their adult life. And he said, I can't, because I can't keep doing this. So he said, I came to the conclusion that, number one, every child has a nature. So talking about walking in truth, we want our children to walk in truth. He, he John, was like, they're walking in truth. But there is a nature of every person, their personality, their interests, they are. Some are more masculine, some are more feminine, some are more effeminate. But there's a certain nature about them and certain interests. Number two is the nurturing component, the parenting of that child and how you're parenting that nature of that child and drawing them to walk in the truth. Thirdly is a component of, and I put this in, a crisis. Because Children that have certain crisis in their life, actually I think of Joseph who had a major crisis, like all your brothers hate you, throw you in a pit and sell you. That's a crisis. David being chased in his late teens and early 20s, that's a crisis by your authority that rejecting you and used to love you now hate you. That's a crisis. So you got nurture, nature, crisis, then it leads to choices. That's the individual choice of that child. And that individual choice often can be shaped by that crisis, can be major, but their choice will influence, for some of them, the rest of their life. Bad decisions complicate life. Bad decisions limit options. Bad decisions don't have to be fatal. Because the fifth card... Like, let's talk Rook, because that's a good analogy for Rook, because we play Rook low, but I played with Rook, with Rook high. When you're with Rook high and you get the Rook card, you know what that means? Ain't nobody going to do better. So, nature, nurture, crisis, choice, and number five is the grace card. When you put the grace card into there, then everything is different because this is the truth. So, for this lady having her children walk in truth, this was like, Wow. And John was so complimentary of it. 
that when he moves to this new commandment, what was he referring to? He's referring to the very last conversation that Jesus had 50 plus years earlier when he's in the last night and the last supper was the first communion. That last Passover became our first communion to the church and John's there and he's seeing all this and he's remembering these constant statements like verse 17, these things I command that you love one another. This is a new commandment. This constant sense of of chapter 17, that they would have a love one for another. This was the emphasis. So here you are for 50 plus years, the church is known for this love. So this new commandment, John's restating this, and this is the love, verse 6, that you would walk after this commandment. This is the commandment. You heard from the beginning, and, and you're walking in it. And then he inserts this from this friendly, fatherly, I love you, to this very firm statement, but listen, there are deceivers that are entering into the world, and they're confessing not that Jesus Christ, this is a deceiver. Literally, it's the idea of this person roaming about, and not like the seed picker. It's the idea of a person roaming, this theological tramp, and there were people that were gathering the truth. This was the front end of what we would know as Gnosticism, and they were saying, well, if you really know Jesus, there actually is more revelation that you need to know. So he puts up these like major red flags, and is saying theologically, listen, you can still walk in truth and have a loving truth and a truthful love, but you do have to understand, thirdly, that a faithful family will always be growing, and they will be growing in this knowing the truth, walking the truth, and the term abiding in the truth. All of these are terms that John heard Jesus say in John 15 about Knowing the truth, epikonosis, it's a personal knowledge, a walking, consistent lifestyle, and you're now you're abiding in the truth. You, you are dwelling in the truth. These are all terms. And John here is saying, listen, there is today deceivers. They are theological tramps that are moving through and saying things that are very close, but they're not exactly the same. And he says, he warns her, listen, you better look to yourself because we don't want you to lose the things which you have wrought. I don't want you to have all the things that you've done. And he's not talking about salvation now. He's talking about rewards, which is a whole nother message. He's just saying, I love you enough and you have such a great hospitality but you're going to lose this because there are people that are using our Christian network, if you would, for, for their gain and their purposes. But they actually are deceivers. They are, he uses the term antichrist. He's not saying they are the antichrist, but they are against Christos. They're very close, but it's different. And so I, I say this because there's this progression. When you do know the truth, you then can walk in the truth, and you're abiding in this. So he, in essence, he's saying these are like red flags. Like something's going off here. Like this isn't just quite right. And, and actually, I, I, I wrote 
I, I wrote down early this morning the red flags they always have to do with they, they do have another authority. Um, it, there's always like somebody extra that actually has more information. So their authority is not just Bible authority. There's always another authority that. Number two, uh, they change the doctrine of Christ. They kind of diminish who he is. Number three, they, they overemphasize love because if you're really going to love, then that's going to trump truth. And they, and they also uh, distort the gospel. This is the idea of the Antichrist. And just a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were doing a cowboy camp. I think I mentioned that. And I had a long extended conversation uh, with a girl that halfway through, she said, you know I'm LDS. And then my wife later in that evening had about a two or three, com- two or three hour conversation with three others. And when she got done, she told me about it. And she said, these girls, they're in their late teen, their early, mid, mid-teen years. She said, they were so sincere. They so wanted to know the truth. She said, I wish we had so many teenagers asking me doctrinal questions like they were asking me. And they could not get over the hump when they said, we're thankful you guys are preaching from the Bible. We love the Bible. But we've been trained that that Joseph Smith had extra revelation that was more current than this. And then they said, they said the same thing that this girl had said to me. She said, we have so many things alike. Why do we have to make it such a big deal about who Jesus is? My wife's like, well, because that's kind of like the thing. I had a guy for years and years that came to our church, uh, Roger. Did I say this? Okay, so to, quite, you know, to, to reaffirm to this. And, and uh, he, he came because his Korean wife, who was a Christian, begged for Roger to come. So he came. And he came for a number of months, and then I had a, a, an evangelist come in, and he made the statement among, amongst his preaching that even if Jeffrey Dahmer, t- t- Jeffrey Dahmer turned to Christ he would still go to heaven based on the finished work of Christ. He got so ripped, he pulled his keys out and he said, I am never coming back, I'm walking home. A year later, Roger eventually, back row of the balcony, ball cap, cup of coffee, and a paper. And that was his position for, for a long time because his wife wanted to come and finally he did. And then slowly over about a year, he moved down to the back row, which is the the closest he got. Many times he would say, Pastor, I love what you're saying. You you just, if you just not mention that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it would be great. I'm like, well, kind of like Roger, that's kind of like the person. And that went on for years and years. Many other conversations. But you know why he was, I said it the other day, the, the love of Christ is what draws people. The truth of Christ is what changes people. And you, that, that one point is a big, big deal. Some of you bump into people this way. Theologically, it's true, but relationally, it's true. In your churches, you might have the greatest doctrine in the world, but if you don't have the love of Christ, they're not going to darken the door. And you can have the love of Christ, but if you don't give them the truth of Christ, then you're really not loving them. 
And I think this is where, back to John 15, that John's continually quoting, that he himself documented years earlier, decades earlier, the emphasis is how you're living this out. So if you can understand all of that, you can also understand these are the take-home truths. They're not complicated. Number one, you've got to express love. Paul said it, to love and all that knowledge and judgment or discernment. So how do you, that's discernment, the ability to see people in circumstances as they really are. This is discerning love. This is love that's knowledgeable. So it has boundaries. And it keeps you from going into the gutter to say, okay, I, I, can, I can get to this point that John is expressing his concern that the church would contain the hospitality. So how do you do that? This is why he says um, in, at 10, if there come any among you that bring not this doctrine, then, then don't receive him into your house. Neither bid him God's speed. Because if you're bidding him God's speed, this is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, why is he saying this? He's saying this because uh, what he's saying is, listen, you keep your eyes open. You, you, um, you keep your ears closed to some things that just aren't right. Number three is you keep your wallet closed. This is when he says about don't bid him God's speed. Again, th this is not, you see your neighbor that's an unbeliever because he might be in another belief, which whether that's Mormonism or Catholicism or, or Islam, they all have an additional authority to this. It doesn't mean that you can't say hi at Walmart. It doesn't mean that they want to have a conversation about spiritual things, that you can't engage them in this. This is implying to this lady, listen, you say Godspeed, that's implying a financial, hey, I'm going to give you monies to take you all on the way. This is the problem. Th this is where he says you are now partaking of their evil deeds. You, you are giving to this, and this is where it becomes a massive problem. So there has to be this point of separation from that. So you have to express love discerningly. Number two is, you do have to welcome hospitality, which is Peter's emphasis in 1 Peter 4, 8, 9. Use hospitality. The idea of you loving guests, this discerning love will warm hospitality. That, that's really, in essence, what the whole point is. And you can do this. I find that within the Midwest... Um, and particularly in Iowa, so many churches are so doctrinally based. They, they understand the doctrine of Christ. That's not a problem. I was talking to, others have asked me. So I, how I see what the church that can end up doing is there's a, a DNA of a church. Every church has this DNA. And it is rooted in the doctrine and your doctrine that shows, will show up in the very nature of a church in this case, for us, there's Baptists, and I grew up in a Baptist church. So your doctrine is really driven by your theology. Your nature is driven by the traditions, and it's okay to have traditions. But the A in your DNA would be the atmosphere of a church. There is truth and love, and that atmosphere is driven actually by your style of worship, the pastor's conscience, and your view of Christian liberty. So when people walk into your church, 
they're not walking in necessarily because of the doctrine of the nature, but the atmosphere of a church. And so John is trying to guard this, in, if, you, if you may, within the context of where he was. And here we are thousands of years away from this statement. This is why it's so important. And even more so today, particularly in our own country, because the, the waters are getting very, very muddied. And so what sounds like, like, man, this is just an amazing guy. Uh, or she's an amazing person. You be very careful about. You just be discerning. It doesn't mean that you pull back and you show no love and no hospitality and no fondness for guests. But at the same time, you have enough discernment to say, wow, you know what, I love you, but hey, there are differences. And um, the, the, the day we flew into Iowa, to Ankeny, to start work here, I was on a, a, a three-seater, three-seater Delta coming in. It was a two-hour flight from Salt Lake, where my, my, my uh, part of the family was, flying in here. And it was Tammy, me, and nobody else. And I thought, thank God. Had a book in my hand. And just as the door shut, this guy sits down. It's like, ugh. Okay. And I know this is unspiritual, but I'm just telling you what it was. And so he sat down. And I'm like, okay, well, so I open up my book. I'm reading. Hey, how you doing? Great, thanks. <laughs> and basically, I couldn't get out of this conversation. I slowly put the book down. I spent two hours talking to Mark, who is personal friends with the, the leadership of the Mormon church. He, he said, I'm a blue blood Mormon. He teared up. I love what the Mormon church teaches. Well, eventually, Tam and I are engaged in this conversation about differences. And all, you know what it came down to? Authority of Scripture and the Bible and who Christ is. And I said, because Christ is not the son of Lucifer. Like, this didn't happen. Where did this come from? And so, I'm just saying to you, doctrinally, it's incredibly important to stay in a church where John was emphasizing so to close, so I'm, I'm, I'm from California and, and grew up. Years ago, read the story, and it touched me because um, we would do what these ladies did. So the story is told that these two ladies, teenagers, went down to Tijuana. Everybody went down to Tijuana. Buy serapes and rugs and everything's cheap and get good Mexican. Well, they were down there, and just as they were coming back, <clears throat> um, they saw a little chihuahua in the gutter right by where their car was. <clears throat> and they knew it's against the law to do this, but their heart went out. It's like, oh, this little, look at this little dog. And picked it up. Oh, it was so... And uh, they said, let's bring it back home. Let's bring it home. And they know they shouldn't have done it, but the article went on to state they wrapped it in a little towel they had in the back of the car and went across the border, back across San Diego, and got back home in L.A., Spent the night trying to take care of this dog, and they stayed all night. One of them, they got all cleaned up, and one of them held it, hugged it, held it close all night. In the morning, the dog was still really bad sick. By mid-morning, they thought, we gotta, we're going to get in trouble, but took it to a vet. And they said to the vet, we got this dog, and he's just not been feeling good, and this vet takes one look at this. He says, where'd you get this? Well, he picked it up, and where were you? Well, I know we shouldn't have this Tijuana. Really? He said, you know what this is? This is not a little chihuahua dog. 
This is a Mexican rabied river rat. Hugged it, cleaned it, slept with it all night. You know, and I, I heard that years ago, and I thought, th that in essence is what lots of people are doing. They think it's a beautiful chihuahua dog, and it's a rabid Mexican theological rat. So you be careful. This is why if your preacher is hitting on doctrine, it's the right thing. You might know doctrine so much, you don't know love. You've missed it. You might know love so much that you don't care about doctrine. You missed it. Somehow that wedding, that symbiotic relationship that you walk, this is the emphasis that John makes. God, thank you for your truth. Help us live by it. Thank you for these short little books, your tweets to us to help us, even it was with Obadiah, the family relationships and Philemon within the context of a church and now even another personal, friendly fatherly but very firm statement that we be careful about that in Jesus' name. Amen.